this is Tom Wallace. I'm the managing partner here at Florida Funders, and welcome to our Angel Investing Podcast. We're all about learning best practices and getting better at angel investing. And the purpose of our podcast is to interview some of the, the best and brightest and most successful investors and entrepreneurs to learn from them how they've been successful, what makes them tick, what motivated them, and how they've been successful in investing and building really successful companies so that we can learn and become better investors and entrepreneurs in the process. I'm delighted with our guest this morning because he's got tons of experience and a really interesting background in investing. With that, Paul, welcome. You have a really interesting and storied background. Why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners? Fantastic. Uh, thanks very much, Tom and, and uh, Florida Funders. Really like what you guys are doing down there. I hope you're, hope you're going to continue to make big successes happen out of that region. So my name is Paul Holland. Well, I grew up in the Southeast. My family's actually been, my father's family's been in the South for 360 years, plus or minus, across a bunch of different places. But I grew up in Southern Virginia, moved out to California 36 years ago, kind of followed a girl out here, which is kind of how it works sometimes. <laughs> and uh, I've spent my operating career helping to start two software companies. One is a company called Pure Software. Uh, I did that company with Reed Hastings and Neil Hunt and Patty McCord and others who got more famous later. That company, uh, we went public, got acquired by Rational, got acquired by IBM, ended up being worth about $2.5 billion. And then I uh, went back to the partner, uh, the venture partner who'd funded it, Andy Ratcliffe. By then, he'd started Benchmark Capital. He asked me to go to a new company, Kana Communications, with Mark Ganey and Michael Horvath. Those guys are better known today as Strava. Kana went from $13 million to $9 billion in 27 months, because that's what you did when you had internet infrastructure software that worked in the late 90s. And then after Kana, I got recruited over to Foundation Capital, where I spent 18 years as a general partner. At Foundation, we've taken $3.5 billion of investor capital. So far, turned it into about $400 billion of returns. To be fair, a big chunk of that's Netflix, but we have 28 other IPOs and companies like Lending Club and Mobile Iron and Chegg and Sunrun and, and many others. Uh, and then uh, about well, a few years ago, as I was transitioning from foundation, I started working with Mach 49, which is kind of like the Y Combinator for the Global 1000. Now I do a lot of work with large companies and help teach people how to become venture capitalists. So, Really, really fascinating background. I'll jump right to the Netflix. You know, we got to hear that story. Apparently, you met Reed at, at Pure Software. How did the investing in, in Netflix coming up, come about? How early did you invest? Tell us that story. So I met Reed. I, in fact, I was just on with a with a, a bank in South Africa this morning, and I met Reed when he had just finished three years in the Peace Corps, teaching math math in Lesotho and Swaziland, in the homelands, and pre apartheid uh, breaking up South Africa. So my best friend from my job at the time, the Stanford Research Institute, was a guy named Matt Grady. He was an engineer from Stanford. And then his best friend from the Peace Corps was Reed Hastings. And uh, back in the day, uh, my girlfriend, now my wife of 31 years, Linda Yates, and CEO of Mach 49, we used to throw these parties uh, in our 20s. And everybody came to our parties, not because we were like, you know, some stars or anything like that. It's just everybody else was living forward in an apartment in Mountain View. And you know, we had a we had we had our parties at our parents' house. So there was a pool and a hot tub and a barbecue. <laughs> I thought you were gonna say you had really good wine or something. Nothing like that. This is in our twenties. Um actually we ended up one of our parties ended up in Fortune Magazine because they were this is when the East Coast media was sort of waking up to the Silicon Valley and they just wanted to figure out kind of what was going on. But 
any rate, I met Reed in the hot tub. That was 31 years ago. He always describes it in a funny way. He says, first time in a hot tub in California with his clothes on. And uh, I said, yeah, well, my wife's girlfriend's family was Catholic. Now wife's family's Catholic. They still wear clothes in the hot tub. So, um, so I met him. And then uh, I was finishing up a graduate degree at night at Berkeley. And my friend Matt had reconnected Reed and me. And he said, look, Reed started this really cool thing. He's found a way to find errors in code a thousand times faster than existing technology. And he needs a business partner. So uh, he asked me to get involved. Eventually, I joined. And then, you know, as I said, we took Pure Software Public. Then I went on to the next startup, Kana. And then Reed, you know, he sort of suffered in silence for a while at the company who'd acquired Pure Software. And then he and Mark Randolph, this story is now very famous, but Mark Randolph was, our, was my VP of marketing at Pure Software. So Mark and I were good friends there, you know, with Reed and Neil and Patty and everybody else. And Mark and Reed both lived over in Santa Cruz. They lived over at the beach and they commuted over the hill into the Silicon Valley. And they were both pretty frustrated with their kind of their golden handcuff situations at the company that acquired us. So they started brainstorming ideas. They had a bunch of ideas that weren't very good. Somewhere in there, the mythical, not mythical kind of late fee at Netflix, at uh, Blockbuster thing happened. And Reed's a you know, very, very analytical guy. So I could totally believe that he would then look at that and say, well, why, why are the, these late fees are so annoying? Why would they do it? And then to figure out that's 90% of the margin for a blockbuster. So while I was at Pure Software, there was a consultant who was brought in. His name was Mike Shu. We were all very young. So Mike was brought in to help us kind of learn how to run sales. Eventually, I ended up running a big chunk of sales there. So Mike joined Foundation Capital before I did. So he joined back in 97. And then I joined in 2001. How big of a fund was Foundation Capital at that time? So Foundation's first fund was a $75 million fund. So so there was a predecessor firm to Foundation called uh, Merrill Pickard, Anderson and Iyer. And, and it was really one of the top, say, four or five firms in the Valley um, you know, back in the day. And so Merrill Pickard broke up into, into three pieces. Um, Merrill and Pickard retired. And then one set of the people started Foundation Capital, and the other set of the people started Benchmark Capital. So that was kind of the origins of those two, the two, those two firms. So my founding partners raised uh, seventy-five million back in ninety-five. That turned into well, it turned into over a billion because uh, it was a great time to be a venture capitalist in nineteen ninety-five. And then in ninety-eight, they raised a ninety-eight million dollar fund. And that fund, for a period of time, enjoyed the highest IRR in the history of venture capital. It had a 535% IRR. That's pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The first handful of investments there were Cordiant, Interwoven, Netflix, Net Zero, Ebates. You know, I think out of 14 or 15 investments, six or seven went public uh, in that fund. And it was just one of those things where the timing was so important because it was actually early 1998. That was before the dot-com bust. Exactly, right. So they deployed the capital very quickly, and then they just had these spectacular returns. I mean, they put $6 million in Interwove, and they got like $240 million back in about maybe, I don't know, 27 or 28 months. Um, so that was just, it's just hard to describe how crazy it was in the 90s. But the Netflix story is different. So my partner, Mike Shu, uh, led the investment. What year was this? This was 1998. So the, the Series A was done by uh, Tim Haley, Tim was the recruiter at Pure Software. So he was our he was our management recruiter. And so he was the first guy to bite on Reed's message. You gotta understand, I, I helped Reed try to raise raise money for Pure Software. We were, we were really unsuccessful. 
later, of course, you know, people wanted to put money in when, it, when we realized we had a hit product, but he had to raise $200,000 from friends and family. It took him a year to do it. But you want to talk about seed investing, that 200000 ended up buying 10% of the company. The company ended up being worth $2.5 billion. So it worked out really well for aunts and uncles and cousins and classmates and all that stuff. So that was a really good seed investment. So my partner, Mike, uh, led the B. So another pure software alum basically uh, led the B in, in Netflix. You know, of course, Netflix wasn't able to make it out before the dot-com bust. And in fact, Netflix, you know, had had some pretty significant challenges that are pretty well documented along the way. You know, they kept running out of cash. And so at one point, well, the guys, Jay Hogue from TCB came in and did a spectacular round there, ended up owning a ton of the company and really, really helped make the company. Everybody around uh, uh, him was very grateful for that. Uh, but I think they owned a, a nearly 40% of the company at one point in time, if I'm not mistaken. And then there's one episode that's not terribly well understood, but Bernard Arnault, uh, LVMH, Hennessy, Moe, uh, very, you know, kind of iconoclastic leader, you know, Richard Branson type guy, got on a plane, flew to Paris, collected a $25 million check, came back, put it in the bank account for Netflix, and that, that kept them moving forward. So lots of challenges, and especially lots of challenges as the dot-com bust, because, you know, there were portfolios, and and we were one of these. I mean, we had probably 15 companies that we had absolutely no business being in uh, that made no sense at all after the dot-com bust. But it was really easy for people to throw out the baby with the bathwater. And we at times were tempted to do that, tempted to kind of de-support Netflix during that time period. But they kept going, they kept growing. And many of your listeners will remember this, but Netflix went public. I always ask people this question now. I said, I said, does anybody remember the value of Netflix? And I'll, I'll ask you. So what was the IPO uh, value for Netflix when they went public? I have no idea, but I'm guessing it was pretty low and I'm going <laughs> to kick myself for not buying the stock. <laughs> so it was, uh, when they went public, it was $350 million was the market cap. And then uh, four months later, it was $180 million. So you could have bought 10% of Netflix for... 18 million now worth, you know, whatever, Netflix, 200, 230 billion. Well, that was really before streaming, right? When they were just competing with Blockbuster, right? Well, what happened was they, so Barry McCarthy, who was a brilliant CFO there and now the CEO of Spotify, Barry will tell anybody who will listen that the IPO saved Netflix because we raised $75 million approximately. And the minute Netflix went public, it was an all out war. Amazon, Walmart, Blockbuster, even, I mean, who knows, people I don't even remember at this point, were, were, and the studios were all coming after them because they finally woke up to the fact they were an existential threat to the media industry. As it, and then the shorts took over. And, and so Reed was getting a lot of p- hassle from the market analyst uh, saying, hey, you know, you're spending too much on marketing. You, you, need, to, you need to generate a profit. And, and so over and over again, he'd have these conversations. He says, you don't understand the size of the market that I'm going after. Like I, I need to, yeah, I think Netflix was the number one advertiser on the internet two years in a row back then. Really? Um, I had no idea. And that's what they were doing. They were building an audience. You know, the company, as my partner, Steve Asala said, the company was not named DVD by mail. It was named Netflix. And this is a, a funny story, but back in, I think, 2001, uh, Reed came over to the house and we lived in Palo Alto. And he brought like a little dongle and we tried to attach it to the back of the AMX system that I had at the time, which is a precursor to Control 4, which uh-huh. is the system we use now. And we tried for like a couple hours because he was trying to send, he was trying to send something over the, over the internet, basically, which was essentially would have been, the, you know, at least my first experience with streaming. We couldn't get it to work. 
and it took them a long time to really get it right. But when they did, you know, Reed's just one of these guys that like once he, once the bit flips, you know, he's just all in. So he had the vision for Netflix being a streaming company, even though it started out as we know is, is really getting your movies through the mail. Yeah, it was all along. The notion was that there would be enough bandwidth. So Reed's a, a guy, he gives talks around the world on education because that's really kind of where uh, his, his, his major outside passion is. He was actually the president of the State Board of Education in California for a while. And a former teacher, I, I heard you say. Former teacher, yeah, taught math in Lesotho and then uh, one of the top funders of, of innovative charter schools around the country, along with John Doerr and others. But he gives these talks and he and I always love this talk that he did. He, he, he says, well, let's let's consider there are two countries out there. One country decides to invest in broadband and 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 really start to like open up the pipes for its people. And then the other country doesn't. He says, well, the country that invests in broadband is going to take over the other country in 20 years <laughs> because they're going to be so much wealthier and so much wiser um, from that perspective. And yeah, so those are the things. And I, you know, full disclosure, I wasn't, I was very hard at work running the go-to-market at Kana when my partner, Mike, was smart enough to make the investment. And then we made, we actually reinvested in, in a fund we had called the Leadership Fund in the public markets. Uh, but you know, the, the tough thing about it is when you have a high flyer and by then it wasn't nearly anywhere near the high flyer as it was. I mean, if you look at Netflix stock price, it kind of did this and this and this and this and this and then it did that. Right. And it, then it did that after like five years. And so eventually we had to distribute our stock because our sure our LPs, you know, they were like, hey, send us the stock. So we did quite well on the investment. But when you think about it today, we owned 11.1 percent. So we didn't do that well. <laughs> When did you realize that Netflix, you said they went through a lot of cash and some very difficult times, which is very common, as we all know, any company. I mean, there's always ups and downs, never never a linear rise to the, the top. When did you as an investor realize, hey, they're going to make it. This is really something special. Was it not till after they went public? Well, I mean, I, it, probably my partner, Mike, would be the better one to answer that question in that sense. I mean, you know, there was always a very strong belief around the board and around the company and a, and a belief in Reed and his team. I mean, he had a, he had a dream team of people, uh, that, you know, that really helped take that company public and, and, and stayed on for quite some time afterwards in that perspective. But, you know, I, I think it was one of these companies that because of the red envelopes and because of the prevalence and the penetration in the, in the tech community, well before my brother and sister-in-law down in Orlando were hearing about Netflix, everybody here knew about Netflix because they saw the red envelopes everywhere, right? They got them, they, you know, they saw their neighbors, then their neighbors would tell them about it, then they'd sign up. I mean, Portola Valley, which is where I live, was a little bit of a proxy for, as a cohort. San Jose was the, was the biggest city that they tracked initially because it was, it was, this was done by mail, right? So it was physical. But Portola Valley is a is a lot of Stanford people here, a lot of tech people here. And so they'd look and say, okay, now we're at one percent of Portola Valley. And by then they were probably at two tenths of a percent of San Jose. And then by the time they got to one percent of San Jose, they were probably one fiftieth of a percent of Tampa, right? And so that's how they measured their cohort. And then, you know, the 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 big thing that was the big mover in the early days of the company was when they brought Tom Dillon in to run distribution. And it was this very mundane thing that they figured out, which was next day mail. So next day mail provided the effect, effectively like the liquidity 
for the company, not financial liquidity, but the use liquidity, usage liquidity. So once they figured out next day mail, then really the velocity started to kick in, right? Because then people didn't have to wait a week and, and lose it and all that kind of stuff. So, and then eventually, yeah, lots of fits and starts on, on the streaming side, but, um, you know, super committed to it. And then I, another anecdote, and I'll, I'll go back to you on this, but the, uh, I had friends in, in, in media and they, and their, their point of view was like, Hey, we, we got to take advantage of these Netflix guys. They're, they're overpaying for everything. They're overpaying for our, our content libraries. They're overpaying for our future distribution. They're all this stuff. And I was like, you know, Reed doesn't overpay. <laughs> it's, not, it's not there. There's a plan behind that somewhere. And then of course, you're underestimating this guy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Three years later, all those guys got completely sidestepped. What a great story. So we'll move off of Netflix. But one last question from the original investment that foundation made yep. when they exited, how many times what, was that 20 X or 50 X hundred X? How would you guys do on that? Well, if you go back to the first investment, if you just hold steady, the first investment, it was probably in the hundred X range as a guess. Um, but it's scary to think, I mean, it's, Probably today, it's more like 10,000x, but yeah. So it's, uh, again, we certainly did well, but it's one of the top five returners in the history of venture capital. And, right? and so it's, it's really hard to, it's hard to know, you know that that's going to happen, uh, especially it's not like Snowflake. It's not like it goes public and then it's worth 80 billion you know, like that day, right? That's, that's a little easier to decide to hold. <laughs> well, uh, congratulations. That's, that's, a, that's a great story. It segues into... One of the questions I like to ask investors, obviously, you guys saw something in Reed. He sounds like a very, well, he obviously is a very special human being, very talented, very smart. What do you look for in founders at Foundation Capital? You did a lot of investments over the years. And how important is, is the founder vis-a-vis the, the, the product, the, the problem they're solving? How do you look at that? Yeah, so actually, Reed's got a point of view that I completely agree with, which is that the number one trait we're looking for is persistence. When I think of the number of times that, you know, I mean, it took him two years to write the code for pure software, and he did it in an unheated house up in La Honda, up in the hills. I'm looking up in the hills here, which are kind of cold up there, you know, <laughs> and his wife was working as like a dose. Well, he did it while he was freezing his ass off. <laughs> yeah. Well, he's freezing his ass off and not making any money. And so, you know, there's so many different ways that he could have stopped. I started to work with him really early and then I had to peel off and go work on something else for a while because we, you know, we weren't getting any traction, getting, raising money. Uh-huh. And then fortunately you know, I came back and, and he was kind enough to let me join. But, um, so persistence is a huge part of it. And so that's, you know, as we're looking at founders, you know, we're just like, there's just over and over and over again. At Pure Software, he used to, this is, you know, dates us all, but, you know, we had a view graph, right, with a grease pencil. And so he would, he'd give talks to the company and he would put how many times that we bet the company, you know, when he sent me to Europe to go, you know, as a total rookie on that dimension to go start and build the European practice you know, that was a bet the company move. Right. And so, so that's a, you know, it's, it's this kind of persistence and belief that, that we look for, you know, the founder's super important. Don Valentine, you know, founder of, of uh, Sequoia, you know, kind of legendary venture capitalist featured in, in the, in the documentary film, I made something venture that you know about. Um, he is, is rumored to have been at a conference down in Monterey and he was listening to his colleagues at other venture firms get up and talk. And they're like, 
it's the team, it's the team. It's this mystical, you know, thing. And they're all repeating it over and over again. He gets up and he says, because Don's a, he was a spicy dude. He gets up and says, we've hidden some of the worst teams in management history behind some great products. And he was talking about Cisco at that time, right? Okay. So, um, and, and it was more the founding team, which is that's, that's documented in, uh, in, in the film. But for me, I funded Chegg, which is my, my first and will likely be my only Decacorn, I guess. And when I met the founders, the way I describe it is I said, I met these two very earnest founders from the Midwest, uh, Ayush Pumba and Ojman Rashid, right? So these are two kids that were foreign students at the University of Minnesota. University of Minnesota apparently has the highest percentage of foreign students. So they you know, formed a friendship there uh-huh. and they were looking for ideas. They'd come from entrepreneurial families in, in India and Pakistan, and they were looking for uh, ideas. So they came up with this concept, let's do a Craigslist for colleges. And then they started to do the thing. And then the only thing that people really wanted is they wanted cheaper textbooks because it was, you know, for people in state schools and community college, textbooks were a really big part of their bill and, and often caused people to have to, you know, take out loans or, or get other jobs or whatever. And then it just took off like a rocket. People wanted these used textbooks. So we became known as kind of the Netflix of college textbooks with, with Chegg. Um, ultimately, over time, it was determined by the board, you know, Ted Schlein from Kleiner and I were on the board at that time, that we needed to move on from the founding team running the company and go out and get a new leadership. And ultimately, we brought in Dan Rosenzweig. And he really kind of took the company to the next level. So I would say that's an example of that the idea was so fundamentally strong and there was such uptake from the market that you would have to have been really bad as a manager <laughs> to screw it up. What year was this, Paul, when you first invested in Chegg? 2010. Okay. Because I, I remember a company that, that I was around in, in the late 90s that was trying to do that. And so maybe, maybe part of its timing, because they were not successful. It was called eSchool Book. Book Renter was another one. They, they, had, they had really kind of come and, and were really more like a, a knockoff in that sense. And the similarities with Netflix, in fact, we hired Tom Dillon uh, when he retired from Netflix. We had Tom Dillon, the logistics head at Netflix, to come to Chegg because the similarities were we generated massive demand, but it was very episodic. And so at one point, we were shipping a million books an hour. So we had to, we had to build this giant facility wow. in Louisville, Kentucky, next to UPS to be able to do it. It's a mixed bag. You know, I just had one of my companies exited uh, Respond Software Mike Armistead's CEO. Mike, when I started at Netflix, I met Mike at a party. I introduced him to Reed. Reed hired him as our first product manager. So Mike and I have been together for 28 years. When I went to to Foundation, he was the first guy I called. He became my first entrepreneur in residence at Foundation. Later, founded a company, Fortify, that that he did very well with. But he uh, had an idea. He was running, basically running software at HP. He wanted to spin out and do another security company. So that's an example where the founder and the founding team were, were absolutely crucial because the idea, the premise was a very exciting premise, applying artificial intelligence to security is what we tried to do at Respond. But we had to iterate many, many times on it. So that was not one where the idea or the product was going to carry the day. It was the team that carried the day. Yeah. And we just sold the company for north of $200 million to uh, FireEye uh, last month. And the reason all that happened was because of Mike and the team. The answer is it depends. Well, I'm, I'm going to s- switch gears a little bit here. You are for your wife now, <laughs> and uh, which is you know, talk about a power couple. And you guys, as I understand it, with Mach 49, 
you go into large companies or companies and you set up for them incubators, accelerators. Many of the companies we invest in come out of incubators and accelerators. And, you know, I'd like to get your perspective on a working working for your wife and that whole thing. And just from a personal standpoint, I kind of find it curious and cool, by the way, very cool. And then secondly, you know, these incubators and accelerators, what are they doing right? What are they doing wrong? Because we see as we invest in companies, commodities, sometimes we get these companies and they're, you know, we start working with them. We're like, did they teach you anything in that place? Like, how do you not know, you know, to have good financial reporting or how do you know not to have a product roadmap or what the hell was, you know, anyway, so you get the idea. So what what Linda's come up with, so so Linda's background was really well suited for, for starting Mach 49. So by the way, Mach 49, she originally wanted to name the company Mach 37, which is to speed the exit the Earth's atmosphere, because the language they use is exiting the mothership, right? Like how do you get, get away from the gravitational field of the mothership? So a lot of space references. But Mach 37 was taken, so she chose 49. One, it's actually the, to exit the sun's gravitational pull. It's interesting, Mach 49 speed this required, but also because it was a it was a bigger number. And she wanted it to evoke memories of the 49ers, the 1849ers. Um, she's a fifth generation California entrepreneur. Um, so it's uh so that was kind of important for her. But she grew up in strategy consulting. She started a company when she was 32 called Stratagos with Gary Hamill and CK Perhalad. So really the first kind of corporate innovation Pure play company uh, later sold that, went on the board at Sybase, went from three bucks to 65 bucks. And then she started Mach 49 really to try to help large companies compete against the startups that were really starting to eat them alive. When I did the film Something Ventured, I did kind of a follow on piece with Huffington Post called Dreamers and Disruptors. And that was really articulating how the venture industry for 50 years had funded the dreamers. You know, Reed Hastings wanted to fix software development, right? That was his passion. And then later, we wanted to fund Reed to blow up the media industry. We funded Brian for hospitality. We funded Travis for transportation. We funded Elon for whatever the hell he wanted to do kind of thing. So mm-hmm. the, the industry had moved from that perspective. And as a consequence, all the large industries and large companies were in the crosshairs of the Silicon Valley and these, and these very um, aggressive startups. So uh, she started with the notion of two things, disrupting inside out, and that's helping companies launch new ventures or build incubators, and then disrupting outside in. And that's the part that I run for her, which is really to bring the principles and the practices of top tier venture capital to corporations and to help them kind of do a better job there. On the incubator side and the accelerator side, she's built full stop objectively the most robust methodology in the world uh, around this. So robust that Harvard has decided that their big strategy book next year is Disrupting Inside Out by Linda Yates. So, uh, and it just blows away the other kind of modalities that are out there. She has a 90% success rate uh, when incubating these companies. And part of it is that she has five preconditions for success, right? You have to have a full-time team. You've got to have a new venture board that's engaged around it. You've got to have seed funding awaiting the company coming out of the other side. You've got to have a leader. Uh, associated with it. And then you've got to be able to work with with some other aspects of this. You've got to do what we call kind of bring the Silicon Valley inside. And then she'll turn down clients that that won't adhere to those conditions. Because if you don't adhere to those conditions, you're likely to fail. The output of corporate incubators, eventually 92% of the companies that come out of them fail. And so she set out to fix that, basically. And by the end of this year, She'll have incubated nearly 40 new companies uh, for, you know, 15 or 20 of the Fortune 500. Including Intel, right? Didn't she yeah, do yeah. 
right? Re rebuilt the incubator for Intel, Stanley Black & Decker, Price Waterhouse, Schneider Electric, and others with this new methodology and this new approach. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's, it's exciting. And then for me, in terms of working for her, I had been planning my wind down at, at Foundation because winding down as a GP is kind of complicated in a big fund. And so I'd been planning my wind down and I thought I'd be working on more creative projects and other stuff. But I started just helping advise some of their clients. And then it turned out that there was this really strong need uh, for bringing in the principles and practices of top tier venture to these companies. So now I've got a our concept we call GP in residence. So I've got kind of a squad of guys of our vintage, basically, because it's guys, because that's the vintage. And they're on average, we have 20 years of experience as general partners in top tier funds. And we go parachute in to uh, these companies like TDK, where we co-founded their corporate venture group, JetBlue, Goodyear, Printer Ricard, so Absolute Vodka, Jameson Whiskey, all that stuff. So it's a new model. Um, and it's gone really well. And her stuff's gone really well. And as I think you know, about four months ago, uh, she was acquired by a public company. So it's a, it's a fun. I mean, this is where the kind of like you know my my life partner and my wife and love of my life kind of you know I'm proud of her when she was acquired when Mach 49 was acquired. It's the first time that I know of. I ran this by some friends at Nasdaq yesterday because I'm testing this to see if anybody can 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 dispute it. It's the first hot Silicon Valley startup acquired by a public company where the startup was majority owned by women because Mach 49 is not taking any outside investment. And, and she has a phenomenal team, incredibly diverse team, and it's majority owned by women. That's great. That's awesome. Love to hear that. Love, the, love stories like that. We at Florida Funders, we would like to fund more women and minority uh, founders. We'd like that. We'd like backing women founders. And, and for a multitude of reasons, love to hear stories like that. And you and I have talked about this. We are still hopeful here at Florida Funders that we're going to do something together with Mach 49 and, and talking to some of the big companies in Florida that, that might be a good fit. You're right in the sweet spot of, you know, the, comp- the large companies in places like Central Florida, Eastern, uh, Western Florida. That's the sweet spot of where Mach 49 works. I and mean, we work with a lot of really traditional companies and we're trying to help them make the transition to the world of digital and virtual before it's too late. We're getting a little short on time. And I definitely wanted to ask you being pretty much lifelong or 30 year, three decade, whatever, Californian. And in terms of from your career, we're seeing more and more an exit from California. Some of this may be because of COVID and people realize now you can work from anywhere and Zoom's taking over everything. And then, you know, some of it, some of the the big time names that Tim Ferriss is and uh, uh, Peter Thiel's and now Elon Musk just two weeks ago announcing he's leaving California for Texas. Uh, I, I wanted to get your perspective on that. I mean, we're here in Florida and we see that as very positive for us. Do you think that's that trend is going to continue? And how do you look at that being on the other side of it? Yeah, I mean, I try to be objective about this. I mean, my first comment will be a little bit tongue in cheek, but the but the people that are telling that story over and over again are the Florida and the Texas people, <laughs> so because um, yeah, it serves their interests and their their desires. But you know, there's also an element of truth to it. I mean, California is a you know it's a very high tax state, and for people that are you know, I mean, Elon Musk went from being a reasonably wealthy guy to being whatever the top five wealthiest guys in the world. And so, you know, for him to move his operations out is going to save him billions of dollars because, um, you know, we do have a state tax here and so forth. 
I always, you know, have to just kind of remind people we've also created the sixth biggest economy in the world over the last 50 years with that tax rate. It's not all about taxes. Uh, there's a there's a certain critical mass of knowledge and experience and insight, especially around technology. And you're dealing with this, like you're trying to create that critical mass down there. I know how dedicated you guys are to that. This is the part that's going to be the edgiest, but you know, some of the states that are crowing the most about if they are able to get one of these companies are some of the states that frankly aren't very tolerant. And intolerance is is the anathema of making money as an entrepreneur in technology. I had these discussions kind of even pre-Trump where you know, my kid's soccer team, holy cow, I had five religions on my kid's soccer team. I had three Muslims. So I had a couple of Jewish kids. I had a couple of Hindu kids. I think I had a Shinto kid, right? California is incredibly uh, inviting and tolerant and open. And that is the secret of the success of the Silicon Valley. You know, we've attracted entrepreneurs from all over the world, but we can screw it up. You can kill the goose that lays the golden eggs. And and I, I'm I'm actually grateful that these guys are making such a fuss um, because maybe it'll begin to start to have an impact from that perspective here. But um, we have kind of a different approach here. It's a little bit more like Europe here than it is in, say, Texas. That being the melting pot, you know, the world's best and brightest trying to get to California and you guys being very inclusive and accepting. Richard Florida, the author, I don't know if you know his book. Yeah, yeah, I know him. Yeah. He's well documented that how much that tolerance is a big part of creating a, a great city in San Francisco and folks places like that. I like to think here in Florida, we're getting a lot better at that. I think it's getting better everywhere. I mean, I think it, I mean, look, I mean, let's face it. You and I grew up public schools in the South and you could say things to people in, in, you know, 30 years ago that would be unimaginable to talk about now. And I'm not even talking about race. I'm talking about like, you know, LGBT, you know, kind of stuff and things like that. Right. And so you know, the crudity has has passed, I think, in many cases, although I think we saw an unfortunate resurgence of this in the last four years, but but hopefully that'll kind of, you know, sort itself out. But I, I just think, I tell this story a lot, and we can close on this just because I think it's entertaining, but um, I started my career at SRI. There was a group there called the Center for Economic Progress, and what they did was basically they, they sort of packaged this, hey, we'll make your We'll help you do Silicon Alley and Silicon Glen and Silicon Swamp and all this stuff. We'll package all the juice, you know, that makes the Silicon Valley work. And it was a great sales pitch, right? I mean, it was, they did really well. The guy who did it was, was, he was actually very good. But they had this, uh, they, they got this, um, client, a set of clients. And it was, it was all these Ohio River Valley medium sized cities and, and related. Like, so it was sort of like Cincinnati and, and Dayton and Louisville and all the way down into like, um, you know, even like places like Knoxville and Memphis and things like that. So it was like a collection of these, of these cities. And they said, Hey, you know, we want a Silicon Valley, help us get a Silicon Valley started. And so they said, okay, great. Here's the study. And, and they said, what, you know, what do we have to do? And they said, okay, first you got to have a gay community. And they're like, what? <laughs> yeah, you know, like this is yeah. not the bastion of 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 like you know gay rights, right? Mm-hmm. You got to have a gay community. And they're like, what do you mean? He said, well, you need an artistic community, and because that artistic community are going to create the galleries and the music venues and the things like that, and then the the software developers, that's where they want to live. That's where they want to hang out. That's south of market in San Francisco, right? You want to create this sort of fertile environment for creativity. And for openness, you know, from that perspective. And, and I, I run into these debates with people all the time because like, oh, no, no, we can do it this way. We can do it that way. And I'm like, 
You can't. You are going to get stronger in Tampa. You're going to get stronger with Florida founders because you're more tolerant. It's just simply. I can't remember the name of Richard Florida's book, but he documents his his something principle. I, 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 that was it was incredibly well done. Like, like he did that book, and it was like he's saying exactly what I'm thinking. He exactly, and he came to Tampa and Florida and and spent a bunch of time here and spoke at some of our tech conferences. You can have a very tolerant culture without having the tax rates we have, to be blunt, right? And you can have much lower tax rates, which is what you guys have down there, and you can have a more tolerant culture, right? And, you know, so eventually these things will kind of like blend, but the stats are still there. It's the Silicon Valley is still the king of the universe for the moment in this world. And, uh, but we're, you know, we're, we're conscious of the fact that we could lose that title. Yeah. Um, in Florida, we, we've come a long way. We still have a long way to go. We had two unicorns in the last two weeks. Luminar out of Orlando, which is LIDAR technology for autonomous vehicles. The founder dropped out of Stanford at 17 years old. He's only 25. He's now a billionaire. And then uh, Schiff Monk out of Fort Lauderdale, which uh, is, um, I don't know that story as well. I just read about it, but they, they, they're they now a unicorn and they're, they're young immigrants from, I want to say, you know, Eastern Europe somewhere. I'm thrilled to see that. I, I want America to succeed, you know, and so I, you know, it doesn't all have to be happening out of here. So, Paul, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Great stories. Great having you on the show and I look forward to working together. Awesome questions. Really enjoyed it. All right. Talk to you soon. Well, that wraps up our show today. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. If you're interested in learning more about angel investing and more about FloridaFunders.com, please visit our website. Just as a quick reminder, Florida Funders is a hybrid between an accredited network of angel investors and a venture capital fund. And so we're out there combing the state looking for the best and brightest entrepreneurs and founders to back. So if you're a founder and you're looking for funding, feel free to go to our, our site and apply for funding. We'd love to take a look at your, your deal. And if you're an investor, please go out, sign up and join us as we work to change Florida from Sunshine State to Startup State as we execute on our mission, which is to make Florida as known for technology and innovation as we are today for the mouse and strawberries and tourism. Thank you so much. <music>